0: Hello, and welcome to the Slate Spoiler Special podcast for Source Code, the new science fiction thriller from director Duncan Jones. I'm John Swansburg, Slate's culture editor. I'm sitting in today for Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens, who's the usual host of Spoiler Special. Dana is on vacation this week, the lucky duck. Joining me today is Slate's senior editor, Josh Levine. Josh, hello.
1: Hey, John, and this movie is just so important that we couldn't wait for Dana to get back from vacation.
0: That's exactly right. Source code must be discussed. Uh, it must be hashed out. Uh, so let's get right to it. There's there's a lot to talk about. So I wanted to start by asking you, do you understand the basic premise of this film? And if so, can you explain it to me?
1: That's an intense question. So my understanding of the basic premise of the movie is based on the Wikipedia summary that I copied and pasted onto this piece of paper that I'm looking at. Um, (laughs) (laughs) What did the the wisdom of the crowd tell you? There's a decorated airman involved. Um, So Jake Gyllenhaal plays Captain Coulter Stevens. As you see in the beginning of the movie, he wakes up and he's assuming this other guy's identity. You gradually figure out that he has been placed on this train in the last eight minutes before It explodes, and he has an assignment from some sort of shadowy military organization to figure out who bombed the train because there's going to be another bombing imminently. And so the hope is that if he figures out what happened on train number one, they can avert whatever crisis is going to come down the line. Is that a good summation?
0: I think that's a very good summation. I mean, it's basically... It's akin to Quantum Leap, right? It's uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's character, Coulter Stevens, is sort of the Scott Bakula character from Quantum Leap where he's leapt into someone else's body and he has to kind of right this cosmic wrong that uh, is is about to happen. And as you said, the difference here is that he has only eight minutes to solve the mystery and if he fails to solve the mystery he needs to go back and essentially do it all over and he only has those eight minutes and when those eight minutes are up the train blows up and colter stevens gets sort of beamed back into what we understand to be the kind of present day reality
1: right so it's sort of quantum leap plus speed minus the bus crossed with groundhog day minus bill murray crossed exactly. with avatar minus blue people <laughs>
0: that is uh, exactly it. Um, so when we first meet um, Calder Stevens, he doesn't—he's completely disoriented. He doesn't know what's happened. He sort of bumbles around the train. The train blows up, and then he gets sent back into the present-day reality. And When he's in the present-day reality, he's uh, sort of looks like what looks like the cockpit of a downed chopper. And we learn that up until recently, he's been a uh, army pilot flying missions in Afghanistan around Kandahar. And sort of one of the first big uh, reveals, and by the way, this is the Spoiler Specials podcast, so we're going to spoil a lot of things. One of the first reveals that the movie uh, doles out to us is that, in fact, Colter Stevens is not an able-bodied uh, Jake Gyllenhaal, as he appears, but he's a guy who was shot down in Kandahar and is essentially close to death. And, and what I one another question I have for you, Josh, and I completely don't know the answer to this, is... One thing that the movie fails to ever posit is why Coulter Stevens is the one who is been tasked with trying to stop this terrorist attack. It's not at all clear to me why it has to be him and not someone else. Like why why would only a guy who's been shot down in Afghanistan be equipped to travel to this alternate reality in order to uh-huh.
1: solve this crime. Do you have a do you have a guess at that? Well, I feel like it wasn't necessarily his training in Afghanistan in particular. I feel like a couple things. The sort of backstory and information in this movie is dribbled out very sporadically and, you know, not in tremendous detail, so I think there's some guesswork here, but I think the right. fact that he was in combat would perhaps equip him to deal with this very intense Situation. But also, I feel like the Jeffrey Wright character, who's sort of the mastermind of this source code program, says at some point that the guy he's inhabiting, out of all the candidates on the train, like he was the closest match for the Gyllenhaal character's like synaptic pathways or something. Right. So maybe they did some sort of scan of all the like nearly dead soldiers they had <laughs> and all of the people on the train. And these two popped up yeah, linked up on the slot machine.
0: That makes sense. Although it's still unclear why you have to be a, you know, stump of a injured military veteran to, to partake in this. Why couldn't an able-bodied <laughs> private from Camp Lejeune qualify? That, that was never explained. And one thing that we, sh- we haven't actually gotten into that we should, we should discuss and perhaps lightly mock is the whole idea of what's going on here. So essentially, when Coulter-Steven's sort of beams under that train, he's not technically time-traveling in the way that Scott Bakula was in Quantum Leap. As uh, the Jeffrey Wright character explains, what he's doing, and I don't completely understand this, is he's sort of entering the last eight minutes of the train ride as remembered by the guy whose body he's inhabiting because... In the moments after death, the brain actually lives on similar to the way a light bulb will maintain a sort of glow after you've switched it off. And in those last seconds, I guess they were able to find the body of this poor soul who Jillian Hall inhabits when he gets on the train and and, and sort of capture that sort of momentary afterglow of, of brain thought. And in addition to having the brain live on for a moment after death, what is remembered by the brain at that time is just the last eight minutes of your life. So that is all explained in sort of impossibly quick exposition by yes. Jeffrey Wright. I was I was scribbling madly on my notepad trying to get down exactly what he was saying, but that's where we get the, the eight minutes. Did I, did I get that right?
1: Yeah, he says it's not time travel, it's time reassignment. That's right. like one of his little pithy phrases. But yeah, this comes sort of in the middle of the movie. It's one of these very kind of awkward moments of exposition that you have to have in a movie like this, where Jeffrey Wright is ostensibly explaining this to the Jake Gyllenhaal character, but he's actually just explaining it to the audience for several minutes in a row, um, right. and I thought, that- and, and, and which, at which point the
0: audience feels some of the uh, frustration of the Gyllenhaal character as we completely do not understand what the hell is going on, and as uh, Shirley Gyllenhaal does not either. Uh, the the fact that it's time reassignment and not time travel is very important for some of the developments that occur sort of in the the last third of the movie because. If it were time travel, the point of... Coulter Stevens' mission would be to thwart the attack on the train, right? Right. But what, as you said in your uh, nice brisk summary, the point is not to stop the train from blowing up. That's sort of immaterial because this is all happening in a kind of alternate universe. What he needs to do is figure out who the bomber was. And for some reason, Coulter Stevens' handlers happen to know that the bomber is on the train. Uh, They also know that he's going to strike again. It's, It's kind of funny how much they know and yet they need to rely on time reassignment to solve the crime. It seems like with all the information they had, all they need is a couple of, uh, you
1: know guys from the CPD and they would have been able to solve this case. Right. But Well, um, let yeah. me stop you for a second because one of the things that I just did not understand about the movie is he's got eight minutes of this guy's life, you know, the last eight minutes of his memory. The guy's on the train, um, the Michelle Monaghan character, Christina is sitting there across from him. She's right. like his companion. I'm imagining that this guy in the last eight minutes of his life did absolutely nothing extraordinary interesting. He was just sitting there maybe talking to his friend, you know, who knows, maybe got up and got uh, something from the in-train Dunkin' Donuts. Uh, right, the, the
0: most implausible detail <laughs> of the whole movie.
1: But the Gyllenhaal character, he does not seem at all constrained by what this guy actually did, saw, or thought on the train. He's able to walk the entire length of the thing. He's able to get off the train at certain points and, like, explore various stations. It seems I have nothing to do with what the guy he has inhabited actually, as I said, did Saw or thought, so that sort of fell apart for me. You know, when I thought about that for a few seconds.
0: Yeah, no, that that's completely uh ridiculous and as if you do think about it for a few seconds you you realize that essentially that that whole 8 minutes thing is just kind of mumbo jumbo. It basically it's an excuse to get Gyllenhaal Hall on that train. Once he's in that alternate reality, he seemingly could get off the train, get on a plane to Orlando and, you know, <laughs> ride Space Mountain all day and that would be that. <laughs> well, um, um,
1: speaking of which, he's able to like make phone calls and like send emails from inside the alternate reality. It's sort of like I was just thinking about like if you're in a video game, it's like if they have the internet inside the video game, it's like you're sort of nested several layers deep into fakeness it's just very hard to follow, and we can talk about in a second the twistish ending of the movie that makes it even harder to follow
0: right yeah, well why don't we why don't we do just that so over the course of the sort of middle part of the movie, we're essentially, what's driving the plot is the attempt to find the bomber. There's a, as, you, as you said, it's sort of like Groundhog Day. We kind of keep replaying the same day or same eight minutes of a day on this train, and Coulter Stevens sort of makes several kind of boneheaded attempts to solve the crime. He, he sort of beats up several different passengers who prove to be actually completely innocent uh, before stumbling upon who the actual bomber is. We might as well just give that away now. He finally finds the bomber. It's this, this character who... Who looks like he just walked out of, I don't know, he looks like he Jay just Crid. walked out of... Yeah, Jake Crew. He's, he's the most—he's the most like white bread bomb suspect ever. Which I guess to some, you, know, you got to give the movie some credit for not making it—you know—the the usual profiled subject uh, suspect. Rather, it's this guy you never—you never would think would be the kind of guy who has a dirty bomb in his van, and it's completely unclear what this guy's motives are. He, he sort of spits out some nonsense about how he thinks society is falling apart, and there's a chance to rebuild it from the rubble. But first, we need the rubble, and so that sort of finding of but the first we need bomber, cardigans,
1: mini cardigans. <laughs>
0: Uh the finding of the bomber turns out to be kind of not that big a deal in a, in a way that sort of only the, sort of gets us part of the way towards the ending uh, in in the process of of trying to find the bomber Coulter Stevens starts to fall for the Christina character who you mentioned before and it starts to become important to him to do you know what his handlers have said is unnecessary which is to save the train from the bombing. He, he's been told again and again that this is just a program, essentially, this, this train ride. But he feels it's important to save these people, even though it won't change the course of history and the reality that he knows. Right. Is that that right? At this point, the movie really kind of runs off the rails because Coulter Stevens convinces his handlers, more specifically a sort of subordinate handler played by Vera Farmiga, to let him go back one more time, even after he solved the bomb uh, mystery and the bomber has been apprehended in in the real reality. So that he can uh, just for giggles, I guess, save the train and, uh, you know, get the girl. And he, he does that. He goes back for a final trip. And he sort of puts the moves on Christina, which he gathers his character has always wanted to do. He apprehends the suspect. He thwarts the bomb. And while he's there, as you intimated, he sends a a text message back to Vera Farmiga's character. And then we get a sort of uh, one of two sort of final codas. You want to take it from there, Josh?
1: He does more in eight minutes than most of us do all day it's true I have to say he's learned to make the most of those eight
0: minutes it has that that last scene has the feel of the last sort of sequence in Groundhog Day where Bill Murray just does it all right you know he like he's nice to Ned Ryerson and you know he, he just is a completely transformed man he knows how to do that day better than anyone else
1: exactly I was going to say that because he also kind of gets nicer you know as we get further into the movie like he doesn't unnecessarily punch dudes in the face he just sort of does what needs to be done like very economically and he's kind to people and then there's also this sort of Very strange part where he pays a stand-up comedian on the train just to make everyone smile and laugh. Just to sort of bring more joy into the world before everyone presumably is going to get exploded into bits. But yeah, as you mentioned, he saves the day. And he always would sort of revert back to being in his pod after the eight minutes Expires And in this case, you think that's what's going to happen. There's even like a freeze frame where you see everyone in the train car laughing and having a grand old time before the eight minutes is supposedly going to expire. But then, in fact, it does not. And he gets off the train with this woman. They like go into downtown Chicago, look at some sculptures. And the Vera Farmiga character, you see her come to the office and she gets the text message. And it reads, you know, if you get this, then the source code worked even better than you could have possibly imagined. You're going to hear on the news that a bomb in Chicago was averted. And in fact, we did that. We averted it together. You're not going to realize it. You're just going to think that you have to give me an assignment. So basically what we're led to believe is that there's now been a branch into an alternative reality that was generated after the bomb did not go off and John helped me understand what happened. I mean, it it
0: makes no sense based on what we've been told throughout the movie by uh, Jeffrey Wright's character, by Vera Farmiga's character. But yeah, I mean, that's how I understood it. The last bit of the movie takes place in an alternate universe (laughs) where uh, everybody kind of lives happily ever after, and then there's sort of a, a one final wrinkle, as if we needed another one. Where, as you said, Coulter Stevens and Christina go to Millennium Park in uh, the Loop in Chicago, and they're standing by that reflective bean that's in the center of that of that park. And earlier in the movie, whenever Coulter's been traveling between the source code, between the train and back to his little pod, he'll have little snippets of things from his memory that he'll see. And one of the things he sees again and again is a little is a moment. Of imagining Christina standing in front of that that bean sculpture, and so there's a sense at the end that he's having deja vu that he always knew somehow that this was going to happen, that there was going to be an alternate universe, that this was going to be his fairy tale ending, and it just makes no sense. I mean, it leaves you walk out of the well, movie essentially with that picture in your mind. <laughs> he and it's also just s- like
1: sees the image of the guy he's been inhabiting when he looks into the bean. So you're left to think that somehow his consciousness is. Commingled with his other guys, like in a sort of being John Malkovich sort right. of deal. Like you don't know. And we should emphasize that he's like basically dead in this tube for the entire movie. And when you see it at the very end, he's basically like just a torso, like just a nub with like an exposed brain. Right. Um, I don't know if we emphasize that enough. Like, the, yeah, I think we, the, I think we should have sort of mentioned that more. Yeah, he got he got
0: really beat up in his last uh,
1: firefight. That in was Afghanistan. a bad I mean, he, firefight.
0: Yeah. I mean, he he went down with the ship, but he supposedly, you know, throughout we're told that he's a very, you know, heroic soldier, but he clearly sacrificed himself for his, you know, platoon mates. And uh, there's basically very little left of him. And so, yeah, we don't really know. Is this all happening in the sort of uh, barely there mind of? Colter Stevens as he exists in that pod has he sort of fully melded his consciousness with this other guy uh, Sean Fennessy the name of the guy he inhabits on the train and now he sort of exists in this alternate universe which by all rights, even by the movie standard, shouldn't exist. It's mind-boggling in a, in a, in a bad way, uh, unfortunately. It's not the kind of mind-blowing experience where you want to kind of go out for coffee with whoever you saw the movie with and, and sort of hash it out. It, it feels like the kind of thing that just sort of falls apart the second you really dwell on it.
1: Well, here's my question for you. Like, in the moment, I enjoyed the movie. I enjoyed the action sequences, the stuff on the train, the you-have-eight-minutes can see it kind of worked for me, the the mm-hmm. groundhog dayishness of it. So my question is, did we even really need the sci-fi time travel bullshit part of the movie, or could it have worked just as a claustrophobic one-setting action movie?
0: The trouble is how do you get the repeated doing the same eight minutes over and over again without some level of science fiction? I mean, in, in Groundhog Day, it just happens and you're sort of you have to deal with it. Um, but I don't think you could quite get away with that in this kind of thriller. You would need some kind of setup. I mean, I think I don't I, know that you could banish the science fiction completely, but right. certainly let's say I haven't I've haven't encountered them, but there might be sort of six levels of kind of plot <laughs> preposterousness in this movie. And it would have been I think could have been a, a really good movie if there'd been two. Uh, it just it felt like there was just layer upon layer of complexity that wasn't necessary. And and the whole sort of alternate universe thing was, you know, it, it kind of felt like the movie was losing control. Although at the same time, it's, to return to a point that you made earlier, and I'd like to echo, I think that what made the movie interesting for me, I, I like you, enjoyed it on the level of thriller. I was never bored. I thought the sort of action sequences were set up well. I, I liked the Groundhog Day repetition, which could have been boring but wasn't. And what made the movie a little bit better than your typical thriller for me was the kind of moral progress of Coulter Stevens. It wasn't just that he needed to find the bomber. He had some demons that he needed to uh, excise over the course of this movie the way that Phil Connors, the curmudgeonly <laughs> weatherman in uh, Groundhog Day does. And that element of it gave the movie a sort of emotional complexity that you don't necessarily expect from a popcorn thriller. And I thought, I thought that worked. And it you know, made the movie a little bit
1: more memorable for me despite its flaws. Well, it ends with him having this really pathetic conversation with his dad when she's, you know, in this other guy's identity. So he's pretending that he was in the Coulter Stevens's platoon and he's like, oh, you know, Coulter wanted to tell his dad that he loved him and, you know, he wishes he could have told him that. And that was a little bit too much for me at the end. I I, I have to say I I like that
0: i did, was i was i was like choking up i thought it was i mean i i completely agree with you that it was uh pathetic but in the moment i uh i found it moving I mean, do you it's, know it's, who
1: played the voice of uh colter's dad no do you scott Bakula.
0: really <laughs> totally dude oh my god that's amazing i <laughs> totally did not realize that i didn't get press notes when i went to the uh, to my screening I, that's an amazing fact i like that hat tip to quantum leap
1: yeah maybe we should end um, it there with that closing the circle
0: Uh, Absolutely. Let's do that. Oh, one one final note, though, just before we wrap up. Both you and I last night, you and Washington and me in New York, went back and watched uh, Duncan Jones's first movie, uh, which was just called Moon, which came out in 2009. And uh, I think I can speak for both of us when I say that is a great movie. I don't know that as many people saw it when it was in theaters as should have. And one of the reasons I was excited for Source Code was just how great Moon is. I I think Source Code isn't nearly the movie that Moon is, but uh, maybe if you'll agree let's recommend to our listeners that maybe they, if they have two hours to spare this weekend they should maybe watch Moon and not Source Code
1: definitely and there's also a good voice cameo in Moon Kevin Spacey
0: excellent voice cameo great well Josh thank you so much for uh, helping me think through what exactly happened in this movie alright no worries for Slate.com I'm John Swansburg okay round two name something that's not boring
1: a laundry <sighs> ooh a book club <sighs>